Unrivaled means no comparison, no competition, right? It is you focusing on yourself internally and deciding who you want to be and then being that person, right? Not letting the expectations of so many others determine our path of what we feel like we should do, right? We get to determine what we want to do and it can make all the difference in our lives. I'm Clint Hoops, and this is the Unrivaled Man Podcast. The Unrivaled Man is where we help businessmen like you be the unrivaled leader in their work and home. We're revealing the perspective you've been missing to upgrade your identity and become better husbands, fathers, family men, and business owners. Let's get started. Welcome to the Unrivaled Man Podcast. I am very excited to be able to share with you today a conversation I had with my friend, Gerald Simon. So before we dive into the interview, let me share a little bit more about him. First and foremost, Gerald is a husband to his beautiful wife, Zanny, and a father to his beautiful children. Gerald Simon is the founder of Music Motivation, a company he formed to provide music instruction through workshops, giving speeches and seminars, and concerts and performances in the field of music and motivation. He is a composer, author, poet, and music mentor piano teacher. You are going to love this. Here is my interview with Gerald Simon. Gerald? Welcome to Unrivaled Man. Oh, you are so kind. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I am honored to be on your podcast. I love it. Yeah, Gerald and I, we've become acquainted over the last uh, over the last month or so, and it's been fun to get to know a little bit more about him and his family. And the more we began talking, the more I realized I'm like, okay, we need Gerald on the show <laughs> to come and share his story. He has a very unique story about what he does for a living, right? As we shared at the beginning of the show, he runs his company called Music Motivation. And he's going to tell us all about that today. And then also help us see how he manages his business with his family and all of the different things in his life. So we're so grateful to have you here. I'm grateful to be here. And I think it's wonderful what you are personally doing, Clint, to help men and to help families. Because truthfully, what you are doing and how you are sharing your voice with the world is helping men to be better men and to help them with their business, to help them with their families. And so I appreciate everything you are doing, Clint. You're a great example. I appreciate that, Gerald. Well, Gerald, as we get started here today, let's go a little deeper into how did this all come to be? Like, how did you get into music originally? And then music and motivation and the connections there. I mean, how how did this become your career? Well, it's interesting because, and you probably know, as most individuals, when we're younger, sometimes we have dreams and we say, oh, when I grow up, I want to be this or I want to be that. And, mm-hmm. and I can remember in third grade, okay, third grade, we had some motivational speaker who came and spoke and did an assembly and And so in third grade, I can remember going home and telling my parents, and I even wrote it in a journal that I had, where I said, when I grow up, I want to write music books, I want to come out with albums, 
and I want to do motivational speaking and, and inspire people. This was third grade, so that was a long time ago. But it, it's one of those things where from an early age, I knew what I wanted to do. And I know not everyone has that. Even though I'm doing what I love, I tell my kids all the time, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Even though I have a company and I've published books and I, I'm always thinking, okay, what other companies can I create? What other books can I come out with? What other products or projects can I start? I think it's about continually evolving and improving and being better today than we were yesterday. In part, that's what, well, we have to go way back if, if we're really going to start at the beginning. Let's do it. Uh, when I was, I have no memory of anything that happened to me before the age of eight. I have no memory whatsoever. And it's actually from a strange, bizarre accident. When I was eight years old, I actually fell off an almost 100-foot cliff. Oh, my goodness. And I should have died. In all honesty, I, I should have died. Uh, there's a reason I part my hair down the center, and it's, it's not for style. It's because I have a yeah. huge crack that goes all the way down, and you can kind of see it. It goes all the way down because my head was completely cracked open. Oh, my goodness. So were you hiking or something, or were you just exploring as just the kids do? or You know, I, I was exploring as kids do. So I grew up in Pleasant View, which is up by North Ogden. And we have a huge mountain. It's in Utah. It's about 40, 45 minutes north of Salt Lake City. So there's a huge mountain, Ben Lomond Mountain Peak. And that was our backyard. So we grew up hiking all over and climbing. And below Ben Lomond, there were a series of these rocks and cliffs. And it was right behind our house. There was one in particular we called Snake Pit. Now, that wasn't the real name, okay? It was right yeah. below Hunt's Rock, you know, but we called this Snake Pit because there was this enormous cliff jutting out of the center and it went down into this kind of ravine, this gully, where there were a lot of rocks and a lot of snakes. And as little boys, we like to go there and explore. And so I have a twin brother. His name is Josh. So my twin brother, Josh, and I, and a friend of ours, Aaron, we were exploring. And looking all around, and we were down at the very bottom, and we decided, as little eight-year-old boys do, that we wanted to see what the world looked like from on top of the cliff. Huh. So we decided we would have a race. Now, my twin and our friend, they climbed up out of the pit, and they hiked around the back to go to the top, and I decided with my eight years of wisdom and inexperience and, and not really knowing what I was doing, I thought I would climb the face of the cliff. I mean, why not, right? Now, did I have any climbing experience? No. Did I have any climbing gear? No. Did I have any brains? Apparently not. But I climbed the face of this cliff, and there was barbed wire all over the cliff, and I was about five feet from the top, so I was about 100 feet up. And the very first thing that I remember of my life is hearing some voices above me. And my friend and my twin brother had beaten me to the top. They started throwing rocks over the cliff. 
And I remember holding on to a ledge and I was looking up and my friend had grabbed this big boulder and he went to throw it. Well, it was probably only about this big. I mean, we were eight, but it seemed so big and he went to throw it and he tripped and he hit the edge. And I just remember looking up and seeing this rock coming down and there were some other rocks coming down with it. And the rock hit me on the chest and knocked me from the ledge where I was. And I blacked out. And oh I, I have no memory of what actually happened. But the first real experience that I have of life was waking up in an ambulance and looking above. And, and I saw all of these medics and nurses and EMTs. And they were completely covered with masks and gloves because there was so much blood everywhere. And I recognized one of the face faces in the crowd in the ambulance and it happened to be my father and i just remember he was looking at me and and he said everything's going to be okay everything's all right you know everything's okay and i blacked out again that literally is the first thing i remember in life because of the fall i have no memory of anything that happened before the age of eight. Oh my goodness it, it really was like the the first time you know my my birth, I guess, you know, being born, you know, born again, you know. And what happened was, and I did not find this out until later, but my friend ran home to tell some grown-ups, and he told his parents, and then they told my parents, and they called an ambulance, and, and they had to get some firefighters to hike up the mountain with a stretcher and climb over fences and come to get my body. My twin hiked down to where my body was. And to this day, he can't even speak about it without tearing up, but he found my body and he lifted my head up, put my head in his lap, and then he tried to put my head back together and hold it together. And he can't even share that experience without tearing up now. And my mother, she was the first to run up, you know, she ran up the mountainside and, and she thought I was dead when she saw me. And and she yes. was, of course understandably hysterical and and just sobbing and my twin he he had just been holding my head together kind of praying trying to help me do whatever he could and later on we found out my body from my waist up was completely black and blue i didn't have any broken bones but it was completely bruised black and blue and what we believe happened is that as my body, instead of falling straight down, which I believe would have killed me instantly, mm -hmm. my body fell maybe 10 or 15 feet, and then it hit a rock, which slowed it down, but banged yeah. up my body. And then it fell another you know, 10 or 15 feet, and then it got caught in barbed wire. I have scars all over my body from my body kind of rolling over the barbed wire. But the barbed wire slowed my body down you know even though it was cutting and, and ripping open the flesh it actually slowed me down and then as i hit rocks along the way it actually bruised my body but i didn't break any bones but it actually stopped me and slowed me down so it wasn't a straight fall which i believe would have killed me but it actually saved my life Oh my goodness. So I imagine the recovery took a long time and probably you talk about defining moments in life. It sounds like that was something that really probably made you quite grateful that you were even alive. Because of that experience, and 
I was in second grade when that happened as an eight-year-old boy. Because of that experience, each new day for me was a new day, literally a new day. That whatever mistakes in the past, whatever, and I tell my kids all the time, and, and they can quote it to you. Of course, they kind of roll their eyes when I say it, but, but I always tell them, when we fall down, we get back up. And I tell them, whether we fall down physically, like I did as an eight-year-old boy, whether we fall down spiritually, whether we fall down emotionally, whether we fall down financially, you know, and we are bankrupt financially, physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it is, when we fall down, we can get back up. And I tell my kids that all the time. When we fall down, we get back up. And that kind of became, for me, my personal catchphrase, my motto, that I may have problems, I may have struggles and trials, we all do, but when I fall down, I can get back up. I can always get back up. And sometimes the falls are so severe and so difficult and so trying that because of those falls, I actually can't stand back up on my own. I need my family. I need my friends. Mm -hmm. I need neighbors. I need individuals to help kind of lift me up. And in life, that's the way it is. Sometimes we're the ones lifting others up, and sometimes we're the ones that are needing that help and that support and that strength from others. Yeah, it's amazing in life how often we have these tough times and we are hesitant to accept the help from others sometimes too, isn't that? I imagine you probably, being eight years old, you that's when you start getting kind of independent and want to do things on your own. And So I imagine being in the state you were, you had to learn pretty early to accept the help of others. And that's a, that's a tough thing. And also what it taught me, I mean, I can remember I had seizures, of course, because of the trauma to the head. I had seizures that year. And I can remember being in class, in my second grade class, and falling out of my chair in the aisle in between the chairs and just shaking violently and having a seizure. And then the teacher asking the students to pull the desks away and asking one of the students to run and get the principal and get the nurse. And, and for me, it really was a very traumatic experience. But also, I think it taught me a lot of resilience because I did have to have one of those huge casts on my head. And, and of course, when you're in second grade and you have one of those big casts on your head, all the other kids make fun of you. and That's not the way you want to stand out. <laughs> no, that, that's not the way you want to be noticed. And so what happens is you're almost forced to develop your own image of yourself and your own character. And I think it really helped me. It helped me become who I am today. So that was kind of the beginning process of this transformation of me becoming who I wanted to become. And as far as going into the music, the fall, when I fell down, I had started piano lessons before then, but when I fell down, I don't remember if I had to relearn. I mean, that whole second and even third grade mm. year, it's all a blur for me. And it's so funny because in my journal, even as a boy, I would write down, you know, what had happened. And, and I had written down a few things a few days before the fall. And then it was like a year went by and I didn't write things down. And that second and third grade year for me is really a blur of what really happened. But in our home, 
the nice thing is my father had been a professional musician. So in our home, it was almost a commandment. You know, it was the, the 11th commandment, thou shalt play the piano. And it was just kind of law. It was, this is what you do in our home. So exactly. I think the 11th commandment was, thou shalt play the piano. I think the 12th commandment was, thou shalt not whine about playing the piano. And they actually had, <laughs> my, my parents had a big sign, and they even had given the sign to me. It's a wooden sign, and it says, thou shalt not whine. And they put it right above the piano, you know, because every morning how we had the little timer to practice. And in part, I think because my father had been a professional musician, he was one of the six tenors with a group called Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians. They were to the East Coast what the Lawrence Welk Show was to the West Coast. And they were really big. They had a TV station and they toured all over and, and they were very well known. And so my father was a wonderful performer, and he played several instruments. And my parents had us convinced that this is what every home does. <laughs> it wasn't until like third grade, I remember the end of third grade, almost fourth grade, when I asked my one of my friends what time he woke up in the morning to practice his instruments. See, because we had to learn, the piano was the first instrument, and then we had to learn one or two or sometimes three other instruments on top of that, okay? And so I remember asking my friend what time he woke up in the morning to practice his instruments, and he said, instruments? What are you talking about? <laughs> he said, I, I play the radio. And I said, well, yeah, I play that too, but I said, the instruments you have to play. And he said, I play football, and I play soccer, and I play baseball. And I said, so do I. I'm, I'm playing soccer and football and baseball and all the teams with you and basketball. And I said, I play that as well, but, but the instruments. And he said, I don't play any instruments. And I said, you don't? And, and it was really the shock for me where for the first time I realized not everyone wakes up at five in the morning to spend half an hour on the piano. And then they spend half an hour on the organ. And then they spend half an hour on the string bass. It was this aha awakening. And I thought, really? You mean you don't practice any instruments at all? But my parents, they had instilled this, I don't know if it was a belief or this knowledge that it was just what we did. And we thought everyone did this. Oh my goodness. So do your kids, do they play the piano or other instruments as well? My son Preston loves to play the piano and he is on the piano like every day. And he is loving it and sometimes he'll play the drums and the guitar and and my son matthew he's the same way he likes to play around and he hasn't started lessons or anything yet my daughter summer she's in high school and we tried with her when she was younger it just did not go well she would fold her arms and bow her head on the piano keys and just cry for like 30 oh, minutes gosh. every day <laughs> And I would sit next to her, and I was trying to teach her and trying to get her excited, and she just did not want to do it. And finally, we said, you know what? You are an amazing dancer. You love dance. You are an amazing singer. And I said, even though I do this professionally, and I compose music, and I write books, and I come out with albums, and, and I do workshops and seminars across the country with piano teachers, even though for me... This is something I love doing. If you don't love doing it, that's perfectly fine. I want you to be who you are. 
And my daughter was really shocked because she had so many people who were saying, oh, you've got to do this. Oh, you need to do this. Because the first question anyone asks our children, oh, do you play piano like your parents do? Because my wife plays piano and violin as well. And so instantly, everyone, they assume, because we do, that our children do as well. And we've told our children, we don't want you to live in our shadow. We want you to be who you are. We want you to follow your dreams. We want you to follow your passions. We want you to develop your talents. We want you to be who you were born to be. And I think it's been empowering for them that they know we're okay if they don't do music professionally. If they want to, that's great. If they don't, that's fine too. And I've talked about this in some of my motivation self-help books that I've written, and I have another one I'm coming out with soon, that there's a difference between expectations and aspirations. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes we set expectations on ourselves and we drown ourselves because we've set a bar that is so high that we're never good enough. It doesn't matter how many books I come out with. It doesn't matter how many companies I create. I'm always thinking, Mm -hmm. oh, what's next? What's next? And I can't enjoy the moment because I have these unrealistic expectations. Yeah, you're chasing this perfect ideal, right? Like, this is where I'm going to get. It's this perfect image of who the world thinks I should be instead of being Mm -hmm. content with who I am. And that's why I tell people we need to really focus on aspirations. You know, with our children, we can help them know that we want them to aspire to accomplish this or accomplish that or to be great or to do their very best in everything they do. And they should focus on those aspirations. But if we impose upon our children or ourselves or others expectations, and honestly, most expectations, they're unrealistic expectations because life happens. Things that are beyond our control. Many times what happens is we have no control over what others do, what others say, what others think. We have no control over acts of God, over nature. We have no control over media, over others, over businesses. We can control what we think and we can control what we say and what we do personally, but we cannot try to take our thoughts, our beliefs, our words, and try to impose those on others as if we expect them to think as we do and act as we do and live as we do. And Because everyone has their own path. And part of it is finding that joy in the journey. And that's what is so wonderful about life. We can enjoy the process. We can aspire to be better today than we were yesterday. And we should aspire for greatness because we want to be the best that we can be. But we need to give ourselves a little credit because, in all honesty, people are doing the very best they can with what they have. And sometimes we're too hard on ourselves. We're too critical. And we're so focused on the future. And we're so focused on trying to work as hard as we can right now that we don't take time to just stop and turn around and look behind us and realize how far we've come, how much we've accomplished, and who we are because of what we've gone through and what we've experienced and what we've done in life. So, I love that. You're kind of hitting the very 
honestly, the very essence of why the podcast is called Unrivaled Man. I mean, unrivaled means no comparison, no competition, right? It is you focusing on yourself internally and deciding who you want to be and then being that person, right? Not letting, like you were talking about, the expectations of so many others determine our path of what we feel like we should do, right? We get to determine what we want to do, and it can make all the difference in our lives. And that's why what you are doing is so empowering, because you are helping others see that they can believe in themselves, that they can believe in their dreams, that they can believe in their own talents. They can believe in the life that they want to create for themselves. And that is what is so wonderful, is that we can take control, that we can actually be in charge, and we can accomplish what we want to accomplish, and then we can go about doing good, inspiring, and helping those around us. So when was it you know, that you finally kind of made that change in your life? It sounds like in third grade, you already had these inklings of knowing that you were going to be of what you wanted to do. So when you, as you went through life, when was it that you really knew that it was, that it was happening? You're like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm going all in on doing music as a career. I know exactly when it was. And sometimes for me personally, it was a very difficult experience that I went through that as in most of us, we don't realize at the time that sometimes the best life learning experiences that we can have are the most difficult that we're going through. My wife and I had been married. Right now, we've been married for 19 years. We'll be coming up on 20. So we've been together for 20 years. And it's, and it's wonderful. So I just love it. And what is so fascinating, we were married back in 2003. And we waited three years before we had our first child, Summer. And it was great because we were traveling and we were having fun together and we were enjoying life. But what was an interesting experience is that we had just moved into our first home. We, we bought a home in Clinton. And my wife had been working and I was working at the time. And what was interesting is she was pregnant with our daughter, Summer, and my wife had to be put on bed rest. Her blood pressure just was spiking so high, and so she was on bed rest most of the pregnancy. I mean, she really had, she had preeclampsia, you know, which is very dangerous. And years later, we had bouts of many years where we had a difficult time getting pregnant, which is why there's a gap between our oldest and then our next oldest, because we had four miscarriages and, and we had several years of infertility. But we had just moved into our new home and my wife stopped working. She was put on bed rest. So I was working and everything was fine. And then I lost my job. And of course, at the time I thought, how can I handle this? And of course, I always had those dreams. I had been working on books I wanted to write. I had been doing all these different things on the side, and I was working full-time. And what had happened was when I lost my job, we had our home. My wife was pregnant with our first child on bed rest, and I thought, I don't have a job. I interviewed a few places, and the main feedback that I had received is most of the companies would say, you're overqualified or you're too qualified for the position we're, we're hiring for. 
And many would say, we know you would probably get in, stay here for a few months or a year, and then you'd move on to something else. And it was really a, a difficult experience for me. Just the weight of everything. all The weight of the world, it was on my shoulders. So what I decided to do, I had been teaching a few piano lessons on the side, you know, just some one-on-one piano lessons. And at this time, I thought I need to either go all in with music, writing books, you know, teaching, doing all of this, or try something else. And I think it's when we are kind of our backs are pushed against the wall and we feel as if we're going to fall in part because we already have fallen. And when the ground is removed beneath your feet, what happens is you're trying to hold on to something. You're trying to grasp at anything. But when that ground is removed from beneath your feet, the ceiling is also removed. And sometimes people forget that. They forget that when you have that security, that safety, where you have a nine-to-five job or something underneath you, it also puts a ceiling on top, and it kind of boxes you in with what you can do. So what happened is I started teaching, and I started getting more and more students, and I came out with a book, An Introduction to Scales and Modes. And it was great. It was a wonderful book. I mean, Scales and Modes, it's not something that you would think... <laughs> Oh, this is exciting. This, you know, th- yeah. th- this is what everyone wants and Fly needs. Off the shelves. I won't need this. You know, and I set up my company as a record label and as a publishing company. And I trademarked Music Motivation and I set up my company, musicmotivation.com, as the website. And, and I wanted this to be where I would publish my books. And I, I had all these big dreams. And two things happened as a result of that first book. I started visiting all of the local music stores to get my books into their stores. What I didn't realize is you would have problems that would pop up or things that would not go your way. We envision and think, oh, this is just going to be smooth sailing. And and once I've finished this, I tell people all the time, once you actually finish the book, that is when the real work begins, you know, because then you have to market, you have to promote. And I tried to get it into the local music stores and they said, oh, well, we won't take it unless you have a distributor. We only buy music books from a distributor. And I said, oh, okay. And they said, well, we can get you in touch with a few different distributors. And they gave me some contact names and phone numbers for distributors. And so I called the distributors. And the distributors said, well, we will only sell your books if you're in 25 to 30 music stores. And I said, like, well, that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to get into 25 to 30 music stores, but the music stores say that they won't sell my books unless I have a distributor. And now you're saying that you won't distribute my books unless I'm in music stores. It was kind of this catch 22. And I thought, well, how am I going to get around this? And I think what people need to realize is there's always a solution to every problem. We may not like the solution. <laughs> Okay, mm-hmm. But there's always a solution. And so I thought the only thing I could think of as a solution of what I could do was try to get a big company to produce my books, you know, like Hal Leonard or Mel Bay or one of these big publishing companies. Mm-hmm. And so I began contacting them. And in the meantime, I came out with a second book, Variations on Mary Had a Little Lamb, where I took Mary Had a Little Lamb and I, I did a jazz version and a blues and I did a classical version, Mary's Lamb meets Mozart. And, you know, I I did a scary Halloween. And so I did all these different variations. 
And Hal Leonard and Mel Bay both wanted to produce the book. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is what I've been wanting. This is the solution. And they said to me, we will own the copyright and we'll give you $2,000 up front. And then for every book that is published, we'll give you a quarter. Oh, gosh. But we will only give you a quarter for every book that is produced and sold after we recoup back the $2,000 advance we've given you and after we subtract all of the costs for advertisement, we subtract all of the different costs associated with distributing your book. And so I realized it really wasn't the solution I was looking for. You're like, I'm better off selling these out of the back of my trunk of my car. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought the solution that I thought would be the answer to all my problems wasn't the solution that, that I was looking for. And in business and in life, Many times that's the way it is. We think we're going down a certain road, and that's not the correct path. And so we need to change things. And what ended up happening, I decided to kind of bootstrap my company, Music Motivation, and I thought I had this idea that popped into my head. And I went to a few local music stores, and I said, can I just leave some of these books on consignment? And they said, yes. And they said, we won't pay for them unless they sell, but you can put a few here. And I said, that's okay. I just wanted to get my books out there. And then they started selling. And then I came up with another thought, another idea. And I went into a few music stores and I said, I'd like to do a free workshop at your music store. And I would like to have access to your database. And I will send out a postcard to everyone on your mailing list. And I will pay for the postcards, you know, to be produced. And I will invite everyone to a free workshop seminar at your music store, teaching about whatever, you know, topic, jazz, improv, blues. But I said, I would like to have some of my books at the end that if people want to buy them, they can. And I had several stores that started doing that. And so I started doing that in Utah and Idaho and Wyoming and just kind of all over the place, these free workshops. And what would happen is the stores would sell the books. I would give them a 40% discount kind of like a distributor would. And, mm -hmm. and so they began ordering from me. Well, after a while, I had a few stores that they called me for their usual shipment of books. And, and while I was speaking on the phone with them, I just had this idea. And I said to the one, you know what? Why don't you call Chesbro Music? They're one of the leading distributors of music books on the West Coast. And now on the East Coast, they're, they sell to like 2,000 piano stores across mm -hmm. the country. And I said, how about you call Chesbro? And I remember the one individual, they were so excited. They said, oh, are they your distributor? Are they distributing for you now? And I was honest and said, no, but call them anyway and tell them that you'd like to get my books. And then I had five or 10 stores that they had to get more books. And I said the same thing to them. I said, call Chesbro, ask them. And, and what was interesting is that, see, I had called Chesbro early on and they said, no, we won't distribute your books. And then because so many music stores were calling them, I received a phone call from Chesbro and they said, okay, Gerald, we need to start distributing your books. You know, we'd like to place an order on blah, blah, blah. And so I was able to kind of go in the back door. And in a way, it's because there was a problem that seemed like there was no solution. But I tried to create a solution and I tried to bootstrap my way and it takes more work. But what happens, and I'm so grateful now, I am just releasing, I don't even have the actual 
book cover, but it's a new book. I want to do what Jesus taught. It has 40 original children's primary songs, but it's my 28th or 29th music book that I have come out with. And see, I have all these different series, you know, essential piano exercises, essential jazz piano exercises, 100 left-hand patterns every piano player should know. And all of these books, they're sold all over the world. They're sold on Amazon. They're sold in music stores. And for me, it all began with a very challenging problem that needed a solution where I needed to, first off, I had to think, okay, am I going to create a company and a product where I own the rights or am I going to give the rights to someone else? And there's always a solution to the problems we face in life, but we need to figure out how we go about solving those problems. And in the end, a lot of the struggle and the things that you went through probably made you stronger. Like you said, it sounded like, I think you said something like you wouldn't change it now, right? This is the thing about hindsight. When we look behind us and we see where we have been and where we are today, I know I wouldn't be where I am today if I had not lost my job. It would be a very different life. And at the time, it was one of the most difficult situations I had ever experienced. And especially, I mean, you know how it is helping men and working with men. And when a man loses his job, he feels so low and he feels worthless and he feels like he's supposed to be the provider and he's supposed to be the buck stops here and everything is, he's supposed to have the solutions. He's supposed to have the answers. He's supposed to be the one that others can turn to. And especially when he has his wife and his children, they're looking up to him and and they're relying on him. And that weight sometimes, it can make us or it can break us. And at the time, I thought it broke me. But in reality, it made me. You know, going through that experience, it forced me to create my company, Music Motivation. It forced me to to work like a madman. And it forced me to put everything I could into coming up with solutions to these problems. And and I started doing motivational speaking. And and here I have some poetry books that I've written and motivational self-help books and I have a new motivational self-help book that I've created and a course that will be along with that. And it's titled Becoming Who You Were Born to Be. And that's going to be coming out in a few months. And it's kind of talking about this process that I personally had to go through, this transformation, because we were not born to fail. We were not born to be weak. We were not born to be broken. We were born for success. We were born to be positive, to be optimistic. We were born for happiness. We need those experiences in our life. And and part of that is with the family. I know you know how important the family is because they provide that support, that strength. And that is so wonderful and so fun that you can share your experience as a business owner with your family that they can see your successes, they can see the failures, they can see the stepping stones. And and most people, they think of failure as a weakness or as something that failure is just a stepping stone. When we fail, it's an opportunity for us to step back and look and say, okay, 
this did not go as planned. What did work? What didn't work? How can I change it? And we need to understand that those stepping stones towards success, it's not about being weak. It's not about sometimes we may get to a dead end and we need to turn around. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not about failure. It's not about weakness. It's about realizing, you know what? I've been going down this road and I've gone as far as I can go and I've learned as much as I can learn, but there needs to be a new opportunity. And maybe we need to turn around and we need to start down a new path. Maybe we need to actually climb over the wall and stand up on the wall and we can see a new horizon. And then we have a new objective and a new destination. And often we fool ourselves into believing that there is like this one destination, right? Where we will work hard, we'll make this happen, we'll do all of these things so that someday we can reach this point, right? Whatever that is. And then what we realize the the farther along we go is that that's a myth. This is all life. It's all what we're doing, right? And so we have a chance to improve ourselves and do things over and over again and be an example of that to our children and to employees we have and to the people we serve to be that person and be the best us, right? I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but that's what we're trying to be is the best the best us. And, and that's a continual process and it changes, right? It changes. And so- Change like is that. the only thing that never changes. And, and people don't realize change is a good thing. It's important for us yeah. to realize that I'm not the man I was and I shouldn't be the man I was. I don't want to be the man I was because I want to be the very best version of myself today. And it's funny because in this new book, Becoming Who You Were Born to Be, I I use an analogy where I talk about three separate people. One I refer to as Parley Past. You know, he's always stuck in the past looking at either the glory days of days gone by. He's looking into the past, or he's continually worrying and fretting about all of the mistakes in the past. Or there's Future Frank. Future Frank is always, he's either worrying about the future and he's so consumed and caught up with what's going to happen tomorrow that he's forgetting to live now and today. And what happens is future Frank, he could be either dreaming and fantasizing about the future and coming up with these amazing dreams, but a dream, unless it has a deadline, it doesn't do anything. For us to create our dream dynasty, we need to actually put it into, and I like to help people understand, you've got to schedule success. How you schedule success is you actually say, in my day, I'm going to spend a certain amount of time doing this or doing that. And we need to include fun. We need to include time with the family. Sometimes I think these individuals who end up spending 60, 70, 80 hours working where they are away from their families, it's draining them. It's depleting them of more success that they could have if they scaled back. You can do more with less. Yes, that whole law of diminishing returns, right? You put in all of that extra time, but more time does not necessarily equal more impact. No, it does not. And in many ways, what happens is you use up more energy and you actually extend yourself too far. And then you're not sleeping enough, you're not exercising, you're not being healthy, your health fails, your relationships are almost non-existent because you need to have time with your family. We just started a new company with my children and we're just starting with YouTube videos right now. We'd like to in the future 
publish books as a family and do seminars and conventions and conferences and different things. But we decided just to start off doing YouTube videos, and it's called Everyday Fun for Families. And the whole reason why we created this is to teach our children about business because our children are the ones they're helping to film. They're learning about editing. They're learning about you know, how to use Final Cut and Logic Pro, and, and they're learning how to edit, how to actually, my daughter is an amazing photographer. And so we're having her take photos of everything. And then she's actually starting to manage the social media sites and she's uploading things and she's sharing comments and it's helping them discover their talents and to actually gain confidence in their own abilities. And that's the whole reason why we did that. Plus we can go on trips and, and go have fun and just be together as a family, which is wonderful as well. So fun. That's exciting. So it's so fun when you can incorporate useful, practical things, but have a huge impact on your family, spend more time together and craft the life you want, right? Oh yeah. So, and see, that. you had mentioned before, it's, it's really about those defining moments that shape us. And far too often, we don't realize what those defining moments are, or we ignore them when they happen. And sometimes years later, we can look back and say, oh, that was a defining moment. you know. But these defining moments, they define who we are and who we can become. And that is what we need to envision. We need to have a very honest and frank conversation with ourselves about who we are right now. And we can talk about who we were in the past, but we need to realize that the past is behind us. You know, the successes of the past, they're gone. We need to focus on being successful now. The failures of the past, they're gone. We may have made a mistake yesterday. If we focus on that mistake, and if we relive and rehash all of those terrible things that we said or did, or then we lose precious time right now. One of my favorite quotes, actually, and I included this in my book, Perceptions, Parables, and Pointers, and I'll just quote it for you. It's just a, a short quote about time, and it says 60 seconds. I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it. Give account if I abuse it. Just one tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. And it really helps you think, my time is so precious. And sometimes we trade our valuable precious time for things that aren't very valuable. And that's why we need to be so careful about our time. And we need to schedule success. We need to focus on doing the very best things that we can do each day whatever they may be. Sometimes I tell people to think of a take three or a take five. Think of, if you can only do three, think of the three most important steps that you need to do today to be your best, to improve your relationship with your spouse, with your children, to work on a goal. And I tell people all the time, when you come up with a dream, a goal that you want to accomplish, the first thing you need to do is put a deadline when you're going to finish that. My wife laughs all the time because I will come out with all these new books 
and I'll go on social media and I'll say, oh, this is when I'm coming out with this new book. It's going to come out in three weeks and, and I can't wait to have everyone you know, start to review this. And what I like to do is on Amazon, I gather reviews. And what I will do is I will say, I'm going to give away 150 free PDF copies in exchange for a review that I'd like you to share on Amazon. And I have them do that the very first week that it's on because then the book always becomes a number one new release. And even if you only have like 50 sales or 100 sales that first week, it still has shot up to be a number one new release. And then you can use that in your marketing and say, this was a number one new release. Even if it only sold 100 in a specific category, it was the top number one new release for the week or the two weeks or whatever. And like this book, I want to do what Jesus taught. It has 40 original primary songs that I've composed, you know, children's songs that talk about Jesus. And I just barely uploaded it to Amazon. We've had several people leave reviews, and we have about 200 piano teachers and piano students who are leaving reviews right now. I just checked online, and it actually is the number one new release as of today in contemporary Christian music. Huh, that's amazing. But again, my wife laughs because I'll do that where I'll say, I'm coming out with this book in three weeks, and then she'll say to me, oh, I didn't realize you had finished that book. And I will say, I haven't. <laughs> but you better believe we done. <laughs> exactly. And, and she'll say, you haven't finished it, but you told people it's coming out on this day. And I say, yes, because I'm holding my feet to the fire. You know, this is not a distant dream where I'm saying, oh, I have been talking about this for 10 years. And eventually one day, I, someday I will finish this book. Someday will never happen. One day will never come. Because if I'm always thinking, oh, you know, this is a, a lifelong dream, I always, the very first thing I do when I start creating a book, I actually write the deadline and I'll say, this is when it's going to be finished. And then I work back from that deadline mm-hmm. and I say, okay, this is when it's going to be completed. Now, if I'm marketing, then it may be another, you know, two, three months tacked on that, mm-hmm. you know, when you're trying to work with the media. But but I'll say, this is when I'm finishing the book. Then I'll work backwards and say, what do I need to do? And those goals, they're actually just stepping stones toward my ultimate successful completion. Because then I say, okay, first week I need to finish two chapters or whatever. And I'll go through and I come up with a game plan. See, that is what I would encourage everyone to do, whatever your goal may be. When you first come up with a goal, give yourself a deadline and say, by this date, I will finish the book. And guess what? Even if you don't finish by that date, maybe you have 90% completed by that date. And then you maybe you have to revisit and say, I've completed 90% and now I've extended my deadline, you know, maybe a month, but you've completed 90%. See, that is what people don't realize. You've got to give yourself a deadline. It's the very first thing you need to do. Yeah, I love it. This is great. As we start wrapping things up, we're coming to the end of our time. This has been fantastic. And I like to leave our listeners with kind of a so what, right? We've talked about so many wonderful things today, and there's probably things that are going through their minds right now, things that impacted them that they have taken for themselves. But if you were to kind of distill down a top action step for my listeners, what's one small thing that you would recommend they do? 
I think the first thing I would recommend that they do is realize, and first it's changing the belief within themselves. They need to realize that who they were yesterday, their past, although it has affected where they presently are, it does not affect who they can become. Because they can make, first they need to make the decision. That decision, they need to think. See, we become what we think about. We become what we read about. We become what we speak about. We become what we watch. We become what we listen to. We become like the people around us, our friends, we interact with and associate with. We become like those individuals. So I would encourage, first you need to have that belief that you can be the very best you can be, that you will be better today than you were yesterday. That is the first thing I would tell them to do. The second thing I would tell them is to come up with a game plan for your life. Now, it doesn't need to be the next 60 years. You could say in the next 60 days. You could say in the next two days, what am I going to do? Who am I going to be? Maybe that means you need to exercise more. Maybe that means you need to turn off the TV more. Maybe you want to read a book a week. And you can actually give yourself a list. And I I like to think of it not a to-do list, but more of a character collage. You know, think of a closet. This is the character closet. Who do you want to be? So what characteristics do you need to obtain or develop? Maybe you need to improve your habits, improve your reading, improve your education, whatever it is. You can look at that and you can decide who you're going to be. You can come up with a game plan. And then, as we talked about with those stepping stones towards success, give yourself a deadline. People don't realize how important that is. So many people with New Year's, they will come up with New Year's resolutions. And by the end of January, those New Year's resolutions have died. They've disappeared. Because you need to create the desired outcome, but then you need to have that desired outcome have a destination, a deadline. You need to know where you're going. So then the roadmap can tell you how you're going to get there. Most people, they don't know where they're going in life because they've never actually taken the time to sit down and dream and say, this is who I want to be. This is what I want to accomplish. This is where I'm going in life. This is how much I want to make. This is the kind of life I would like to lead. So they don't know where they're going. And because of that, they're never going to get there. If you don't know where you're going, you'll never get there. But you also need to have a game plan. And that's why I would tell them the main three things, believe in yourself, know who you are, that you can be better today than you were yesterday. The second thing I would tell them is coming up with that, understanding that game plan. It will be different for everyone, but you need to create a game plan to help you go to your destination. And the third, give yourself a deadline that you will know by this date, I will have accomplished whatever. Every day, take three things and work on just three things or take five things. Don't come up with a list of 100 or 200 things that you're going to accomplish. If you focus on three things, one or two, you will definitely accomplish that day. You focus on more than five, you know, five, that's why I say take three or take five. Five is be for the ultimate go-getters, you know, the achievers, anything more than five, you're never going to accomplish it. And then you've set up unrealistic expectations. 
See, focus on aspirations versus expectations. But that is what I would encourage everyone to do. Great actions. Great actions. So how can people connect with you more? If they want to learn more about some of your books, any of those things, where is the best place for people to find you? Well, thank you. So I have a few different websites. And and we'll link all these in the show notes, by the way. Yeah. yeah so I'm on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Gerald Simon. I also have a podcast like your podcast, and it is empowered by positivity. It's the Positivity Podcast with Gerald Simon. So you can kind of check that out. My website is musicmotivation.com. I have a few different websites for piano students. One is essentialpianoexercises.com. One is essentialpianolessons.com. One is essentialpianoteachers.com. I have music that I've composed that you can find on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon. You know, It's on Pandora and all the different streaming sites. I have about 13, 14 albums I've come out with and 28, 29 books that I've come out with that you can find on Amazon.com. They're at Walmart.com, BarnesandNoble.com, you know, just different places. Well, thank you. Like I said, we'll have links to all those in the show notes. And Gerald, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing your experiences and your wisdom today. I'm happy to do. I don't know what wisdom I have, but I'm just happy to spend time talking with you and talking with your audience. And and I'm just grateful for what you are doing, Clint, because you really are being an example. We need more good men to stand up and help educate others and inspire others because we need good men. We need godly men. We need men who can be successful in business and successful in life with their families. So thank you for all you do. Thank you, Gerald. Thanks for joining me on this week's episode of the Unrivaled Man Podcast. I'm Clint Hoops, and if this show has impacted you, please share it with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts.